morning, everybody. My name's Peter McMillan. I'm the Executive Officer at NT Shelter. And today we've got another episode for you of Sharing the Couch. Today we're recording uh, from Darwin on Larrakia country, and I'd like to pay my respects to the Larrakia people, to any other First Nations people who might be watching this broadcast. This is another episode of Sharing the Couch where we get to have conversations around housing and sectors that we work with that affect housing and are interrelated with housing. And I'd like to, again, acknowledge all the great work that many people are doing in the housing sector. And today is really an opportunity, again, to hear more about uh, the work that's being done in the field that makes a real difference on the ground to people who are experiencing either homelessness, housing, insecurity, and the other uh, issues connected with um, uh, poor quality housing. Uh, today's uh, broadcast and conversation uh, will discuss themes regarding uh, violence against women that may be distressing to some viewers. So I guess just like to mention that at the start. Um, and we'll also at the end of the program um, put up a reference to uh, people who might have been affected by the conversation around getting some um, assistance numbers to call if that is the case. But just want to mention that at the start. Uh, today, uh, it's a real uh, privilege to be talking to Dr. Shay Brown. Shay has been researching violence against women in Australia's Northern Territory since 2013. She completed her master's research on the impact of the Northern Territory Emergency Response, or what we refer to as the intervention, on violence against women in Alice Springs town camps. From 2016 to 2020, Shay designed and led research exploring what works to prevent violence against women in the Northern Territory and led the development of a Northern Territory specific violence prevention framework. Shay has a background in international development and education. She's been involved in projects in HIV testing and counselling, microfinanced income generating projects and teaching colleges. She's previously worked in East Timor, Uganda, United Kingdom, Thailand and China. She's spent the last two years teaching and working with trafficked women. It's probably not the last two years, probably going back a little while longer. Sorry, Shay. She's spent two years teaching and working with trafficked women in safe houses in Thailand. Shay has a diverse range of research interests, which include the impact of government policy on Indigenous communities, gender and development, gender-based violence, youth-related crime and violence, human rights, applied anthropology and international law. Just also like to maybe mention that Shay has also um, been involved with a fair amount of published work. So um, in no order, I guess, of priority there, uh, published in 2021, an article, uh, a piece called, Can I Sh Just Share My Story? Experiences of Technology Facilitated Abuse Among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Women from Regional and Remote Areas. Um, I'll bring in Shay now. We can talk about some of these things a bit morning. Good, uh, a bit more. Good morning, Shay. How are you? I'm good. Good morning. Thanks Excellent. for having me on. No, that's uh, that's great to have you. I was just looking for that other piece, and I found it here in front of me. Um, some of the other stuff you've done. Uh, I see where are the safe places? Safety mapping with town campers in Alice Springs back in 2019. Uh, we we talked about. Can I just share my story, which you co-authored with Bandy? Yeah, Annick Thomason, Melinda Murray, and Eunice Yu with the Office of the E-Safety Commissioner. And I guess more recently, uh, Safe, Respected and Free from Violence Projects Evaluation, as well as uh, some stuff with um, uh, the Pacific, I see as well, with some Pacific Island nations and having that toolkit with United Nations women. So you've done a lot of work. Um, I'd just like to go back, I guess, to where it all started. And, and I must admit, I don't know if you're from the Northern Territory or if you moved to the Northern Territory. You want to tell us a bit about, mm. about that? No, I'm born and raised. So I'm born and raised in in, in Bantua, Alice Springs. Um, born here, raised west of, of Alice, um, out bush, and spent a lot of my time my childhood years and teenage years in various remote communities throughout Central Australia. So born and raised and then um, spent some time living overseas, working on various projects and then returned um, here to live um, permanently. My family is still all here, um, returned here, I think, in 2017 or 2018. That's wonderful. And I think you're the first person we've had on the, on the program is actually born and and raised here so that's great great to hear and i'm just wondering actually when you when you are traveling and you've some of those countries i read out before 
uh, quite some distance, obviously, away from Alice Springs. I guess if you're born and bred in Alice Springs, there's probably something that's calling you back home as well mm. that you're missing substantially. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, through that, throughout that whole period of time, like living, working in Uganda, the UK, Thailand and elsewhere, um, I would, you know, regularly come home and visit my family here and my friends here. So, but they do say like once that, once that red dust gets into your veins, you'll always you know, <laughs> be called back. There's no getting away from it. Absolutely. And so you, you started off with international studies uh, at Deakin University, and that, that included a Bachelor of International Studies in International Relations, International Law and Anthropology. What was the appeal there for you? Um, I mean, I think I've always had a strong sense of social justice growing up um, in Central Australia. And so I went on to study that because that that's what appealed to me. And I think I wanted to have a greater understanding of those international mechanisms, um, human rights law mechanisms, for example, uh, and how that's used to advocate, create change and improve outcomes for people all over the world. Um, and I think I was much more externally focused when I was younger. Um, and that's because I really hadn't spent any time or much time outside of Central, uh, Central Australia at all up until I went on to study when I was younger. So I, I guess I was um, couldn't see what was right in front of me because I was so used to um, the everyday challenges presented by remoteness, lack of housing, you know, things like that mm. on a daily basis. I suppose I, I was almost oblivious, or not completely, but um, to the challenges in Central Australia. So when I was going off to study, people would often say, but like, why are you going over there? And we, we need you here and we need um, mm. help here. And I think it took me going away to, to fully appreciate that. And were the issues that you saw in places like Uganda um, and Thailand, and that's similar to what you're experiencing or what you're seeing in Central Australia when it comes to issues like violence against women and children? Yeah, uh, de definitely. Um, Central Australia and Northern Territory more generally has far more in common with um, nations in the global south, context in the global south, um, than it does with urban Australia or, you know, as Territorians refer to as mm. down south. Um, regardless of whether it's south or not. Um, so, yes, I did see a lot in common uh, contextually around some of the risk factors that sit around violence against women, particularly when it comes to, like, discrimination, disadvantage, things like that. Um, so, but actually a, a lot of the conditions are, are far worse here in Central Australia than they are in various places that I've lived around the world. Um, we yeah. kind of have this attitude as Australians that, the rest of the world must be um, kind of worse off than we are. And, and that's just, just, just not the case. Um, there's a bit of a stereotype as well of, of lower middle income countries and the global south as, as all being impoverished or whatever. But, you know, the reality is, is that there's huge middle class in this place and um, in these places. And, yeah, often they have far more advanced technology and much better at rolling things out more equitably than, than we are in Australia. I think in Australia the really stark thing is, the huge disparity between urban places um, and remote places, and, and in the ninth, ninth richest country in the world, that should that shouldn't be the case. People should be able to access the same goods and services regardless where they are in the country. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right, and we often see that in terms of uh, conversation around housing as well and homelessness. That we're a prosperous nation uh, in yeah. terms of the OECD. Um, for those who aren't so familiar, and I'll probably include myself in this, um, do you want to tell a bit about the work, the study of anthropology, and I guess how that helps you do that work in um, in in violence against women and and domestic family sexual violence? I mean, what what how does anthropology itself position you to work effectively with town camps and with other communities? Mm. Well, I suppose I have to say that I'm multidisciplinary, so I work across lots of lots of fields. But when it comes to anthropology, I'm specifically an applied anthropologist. So it's more about the social research methods that anthropology uses, things like ethnography, participatory action research, things like that, um, to look at social problems and then come up with creative solutions or design effective responses to them. So that's how the anthropology kind of informs or applied anthropology informs the work um, that I do. Um, but anthropology as a field more generally can be problematic in this space in that um, it has a history, as, as many things do, but has a history of people going out and 
to the field um, for long periods of time and kind of extracting lots of knowledge and, and expertise and resources and then taking it away and there's no discernible benefit to the community. So I like applied anthropology because it presents a middle ground where it can draw upon the strength of those social research methods that applied anthropology advocates for, but its focus is very much on the community that you're working with. So what's their priorities, what's their agenda, and then how can the research that you produce, how can that ultimately benefit the, the, the community that you're working with? Okay, no, that's that's really interesting, um, and so just uh, one of the things that is interesting when I well, I guess when we talk with people like yourself who are well published um, and uh, appear have appeared in uh, ABC articles and in the conversation and other pieces, uh, commenting like with SBS and, and elsewhere, um, how does where does the where do you see the role between the re research and advocacy? And I think it's really interesting in this case because we don't have like a recognised, uh, um, I guess, domestic family violence peak body that I'm aware of. Uh, and so how do you see, I guess, your role as, as a research, having that research and anthropology and uh, I guess advocacy lens to a degree as well? How do, you, how do you juggle that? And how do you see what you're doing now as um, in terms of positioning yourself against those kind of elements? Yeah, it is an interesting dynamic because... Um, I think kind of when I started out, there was this idea and it's still held by a lot of people that research is supposed to be objective and, and neutral. Um, so shouldn't be really getting mixed in with advocacy. But I would say, and a lot of other people would say that ob objectivity and neutrality is actually impossible. Um, we all come to the research through our own lens, our own worldview, our own experiences. So we shape it, we craft it. You can't Re, you can't remove the researcher from the research mm. uh, and that's called a, a social constructivist view um, because researchers ultimately they choose the questions they do all those kinds of things so um, the researcher is in, innate or inherent in the research itself so the idea that it should somehow be separate from advocacy and advocacy is essentially standing up for the things that you care about and um, and talking up for the communities that you work with to me it research is inherently linked with that. Um, not everyone will agree with me. Um, so for me, research informs advocacy because it means that you have a solid evidence base from which to advocate from. Um, research, particularly social research, um, in my view, is very much about working with communities to uplift um, their knowledge, highlight their knowledge, identify problems and identify solutions to those problems. And then, of course, the next step is to then disseminate those um, solutions and to advocate, mm. advocate for them and advocate quite strongly. And I think when you're insider, outsider researcher, they call it, so you're, with, you're embedded within the community, you're a part of the community, but you're also outside of it in some respects because you are communicating with other people who are members of your community and you might not necessarily be a complete member of it or you observe it sometimes from the outside. So being that kind of insider-outsider role, it's, it's pretty hard to be embedded within community, to see all the things that are going on, to see um, the great things that are going on, um, yeah. to see the, the creative solutions in place and not speak up for them. And I think that's actually... Yeah, I, I don't think that would be appropriate to, to remain silent. And I guess it would be extremely difficult to be dispassionate about that too. I mean, if you're in this type of research, if you're embedded so closely in the community and you're seeing, as you said, positives and things that need to change and need to improve, how can you not? Um, yeah. how, can, how can you go home and think, well, I'm just going to, I've done my job and that's it. I mean, I guess you're seeing things and you're well-placed to articulate what needs to be done, I guess. So it is a, it is a blurred line, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, Shay, you're uh, currently working at the um, Equality Institute, and um, I, I see they're doing some great work. I must admit, it's not an organisation I don't know a lot about. Do you tell us a little bit about what that is? I know you've got some staff in places like Timor Leste as well, yeah. um, and you do just pretty cool things like taking them on. Uh, I know you've been on some great retreats that I've seen on <laughs> social media as yeah. well. It looks like a lot of fun, but obviously yeah. a lot of important, serious work too. Can you tell us a bit about that and what your role is in the, in the Institute? Yeah, so the Equality Institute is an organisation dedicated to the prevention of violence against women and girls. Uh, it's a global um 
organizations. We work all around the world. We work here in, a, in Australia, but we work mainly in Asia and Pacific, but um, we are part of global initiatives and have partners right across the world. So we're a research um, organization and we also have an in-house creative communications team as well, which means we're kind of in this unique position where we can undertake the research, really um, great um, creative um, research, and then produce it into meaningful, useful communications products because uh, we know and recognize that not everyone will sit and read, you know, a couple hundred page report. Um, so our team is very good at taking that and synthesizing it and turning it into something that's accessible that people will um, pick up and read and it will genuinely inform um, programs and policy responses going forward. Um, so that's who we are. So we have um, team members in Melbourne, Sydney, here and in Bantua, Alice Springs and in Timor-Leste. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, uh, we do come together uh, whenever we can and have fun. So quite recently, the Equality Institute came to Mbantua Alice Springs for um, our retreat and that was really fun and it was great for the whole team, those based in Melbourne and, and Timor Leste to meet with some of our partners here and some of the people we work with really closely. Um, but we, yeah, we work on things all, all around the world. For instance, we most recently completed a, a global shared research agenda for research on violence against women in low and middle income countries and our CEO and founder, um, Dr. Emma Fulu, um, is you know highly engaged uh, throughout the world in various high level projects and you probably would have seen her in lots of media on the project and Q&A and things like that and yeah, Emma's a fantastic person to work for. Sounds like a great organisation. We're doing really important work, but also have that camaraderie and um, and uh, collegiality with with uh, with other team members around Australia and Timor Leste would be fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd just like to um, talk about some of the work you've done recently, and I know um, your work has informed the Northern Territory government's to, uh, framework, the domestic uh, uh, family violence reduction strategy, and, and so forth, and um, and I've seen you uh, talking about prevention uh, as well and the lack of prevention, the lack of funded services or the fact that a lot of people would struggle to name any services that are funded for, I guess, prevention uh, in this space. Um, in our sector as well, in housing and homes, we often hear this notion of, well, we need to put more money into prevention, which, which we do, people stop people going into homelessness or housing stress. Um, but also we do have this great need for emergency or crisis response as well. So I'm just curious as to, I guess, well, I'm curious as to whether we just don't need to tackle both, but yeah. still get that focus on prevention. Do you want to talk about what prevention yeah. means to you in this space? Yeah. Yeah, that is a, a tricky one. Um, so primary prevention, because we, we talk about violence against women um, using the public health model, um, because violence against women, the most common forms of that are domestic, family and sexual violence, and they are public health problems. They're not private issues. So we talk about our response our, or our approach to violence against women through that public health model. So we have primary prevention early intervention, response and recovery. So primary prevention is about addressing those underlying drivers um, that cause violence against women, um, that cause domestic family sexual violence um, with the view to prevent violence before it occurs. Mm -hmm. and, and then response at the other end is all, all about preventing further harm, but this is about responding um, to women and children who have experienced violence and supporting them with whatever it is that they need. Um, and that includes crisis accommodation and transitional housing. And you, you're right, we have to do both. So ideally one day, and it, and it will be a long way away, we are talking about generational change and that's what prevention is. It does, it is long-term. So whilst we're, whilst we're um, making those preventative efforts, we also have to make sure we have protective factors in place. And that means that we do have um, emergency services, crisis accommodation, transitional housing. Um, the two, they can't replace each other. So crisis cannot be replaced by prevention and prevention cannot be replaced by crisis. Unfortunately, in the Northern Territory, 
um, often it, it is those who are responsible for response, responsible for crisis response, are also responsible for prevention. And what that means is that prevention often falls away. When you're, when you're constantly at crisis point, it is very, very difficult to think about prevention uh, because prevention is all around um, messaging and education and training. So, of course, that doesn't get prioritised when you're, when you're dealing with women and children right in front of you who have experienced often quite severe violence. Mm. Um, and the solution to that is that we need a prevention workforce. Yes. And we don't have that at the moment in the Northern Territory. We're slowly growing it. But primary prevention um, for domestic family sexual violence, that wasn't funded in the Northern Territory until 2018. You know, that, that's only four years ago. We have a long way to go. And with that funding, that funding is directed at project work. So it's not directed at salaries. So there's no direct funding for, for a primary prevention workforce. So that just means that other people do primary prevention work in addition to their normal roles. So they're doing more work, um, but with fewer resources or inadequate resourcing. I do believe we're slowly getting better at that in the Northern Territory, and it's been great to see the Northern Territory government expands primary prevention funding in the NT, but we have a very long way to go, particularly considering the level of need. And that the problem has been that nationally we have taken this kind of population-based funding approach yeah. Yeah. Um, which meant obviously the Northern Territory with a very small population has gotten very limited resources, very limited funding. And yet we have the highest rates of domestic family sexual violence in Australia by a long way, um, including severe violence. So we need that needs-based funding. And I think it's great to see our minister in the Northern Territory talking about needs-based funding now. And we certainly see that in our sector as well. We, uh, we're getting funding based on uh, our share of population rather than need. And um, it just means there are so fewer things that we could do as a result. Um, do other states, yeah. just out of interest, other states generally have a prevention workforce? Yeah, some do, particularly Victoria. Um, Victoria is often looked at kind of the gold standard when it comes to responding responding to violence against women, and that's because they have, like, um, you know, inquests into it and um, uh, they've had quite a dedicated and well-funded uh, response to it. Um, so they, they seem to be a little way ahead of everybody else because they've had that kind of dedicated uh, and focused attention on it. However, they do also have um, much more uh, funding and resources than than everybody else as well. Um, whereas the NT is yeah is is lacking in that. Um, and also, there's all these other contextual complexities that make it very difficult to respond to domestic family sexual violence in the Northern Territory. Remoteness is a huge barrier. For example, remoteness makes things incredibly difficult. Um, for for example, in other jurisdictions often the response that people will give um, to violence against women or uh, uh, advice is they'll say, call the national helpline. Yeah. Um, but obviously in many places in the Northern Territory that do not have phone network coverage uh, or have very limited access to phones or using shared devices or are using pay phones, that's not really a viable option. And then also um, the national hotline, if we have, say, a First Nations woman in a very remote location and English is her second, third, fourth, fifth language, mm -hmm. if she somehow calls that number, is the person on the other end going to be able to respond and to be is she going to be able to access that service in a culturally and linguistically safe and accessible way? That's highly unlikely. So it means that a lot of the things in place nationally don't actually work here either. Right. So it's not just that we're under-resourced, it's that the things that are supposed to be for everyone, they don't fit here, they don't work here. Um, I think they could, but they would need quite a lot of adaptation. But to get to that stage, we need, um, we need the nation to recognise um, the reality of what's going on in the Northern Territory and the reality of the challenges that we face here. And then we need them to fund and resource us accordingly. Sure. I'd just like to talk about that funding because one of the things that does irk me a little bit is sometimes when we hear these expressions, cap in hand or going down to Canberra like with a begging bowl or whatever, as if there's something wrong with asking for money that's needed to tackle issues like this and, uh, and to get a fair share of, of funding. I mean, I just think it's, you know, it takes money to provide services mm. and fund a workforce. It takes money to build 
uh, shelters and, and housing for women that are fleeing violence. I mean, do you, do you have a yeah. sense of that as well? Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that that is what we pay our taxes for. Yeah. Um, if we, and what are we paying taxes for if, if not to provide emergency accommodation to people that need it? What kind of society do we want to be that we would, that we, we would honestly advocate that we don't have housing for people who need it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I do get that sense, but we, we have to remember that the territory is not a state. So it doesn't have the same fiscal and legislative capabilities as states do. Um, so states have, are able to um, get more in tax, for example, GST, and they're able to have, they have more control over their legislation than what we do. Like, so we're susceptible to government intervention at any time, for example, to overrule our laws, although we have just passed something um, recently to try and um, reverse that trend, um, particularly around euthanasia and whatnot. But nevertheless, um, the territory is dependent on the federal government for funding. Um, yeah. And so we need that funding. So, so it may be, people may be reluctant to ask for that, although I think people are, are pretty good at that these days. But the reality is, is that we need it. Mm. Um, and also um, we are entitled to it. Territorians should be able to access the same goods, services, infrastructure as everybody else in Australia. That is not a radical statement. And in order for that to happen, the federal government needs to fund it. Couldn't agree with you more, hey? <laughs> music to my ears. Um, I, I'd just like to also now, I guess, look at um, the work you've been doing with the Tungajira Women's Safety Group and, and I, I guess the work you're doing in, in the closely connected with town camps down there and uh, there was a uh, there was a picture uh in the, in the media recently of you getting getting a hug off Andy Shirley and Campbell as well which was really beautiful in such a very difficult time for the community down there in, in Bundwa um can you uh, I guess talk about how what the work that you are doing with 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 that group and and what you're trying to achieve there yeah, so I've worked with the Tungandura Women's Family Safety Group for um, years now, um, since 2016, I, I think. Um, the Tungandura Women's Family Safety Group is a group of around 13 senior women from Alice Springs Town Camps, uh, and they got together um, to bring visibility to Aboriginal women's experiences and to stand up and say no to family violence. So they're quite um, a formidable and unique group. Um, this is a, a little group that formed by themselves of their own volition to, to say no to family violence. All these women have lived experience right. of domestic family violence. Um, mm. So it's quite amazing, really, um, the strength and, mm. uh, and resilience in these women and how community focused they are that um, that they stand up. They stand up for everyone as well. Um, they are very much about bringing visibility to Aboriginal women's um, experiences, but they are also very clear that they advocate for all women uh, and they want all women in our community, uh, cold women, like women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, um, refugee and migrant women, LGBTQI people, everybody, they, they speak up for everybody, um, which is, yeah, which is amazing and needed. And it's been amazing to watch what was this small group in, in, Central Australia um, come to have such a platform and such a voice. Um, so now that it is anytime a minister comes to Central Australia or, or any of these large national organisations want to hear from Central Australia, they will go and they will speak to these women. Um, so it's fantastic to see um, First Nations women's leadership celebrated in that way um, and to see like their perspectives, which is so important as grassroots community members who are, you know, on the front lines driving change and they are so prevention focused as well they do so much primary prevention uh, work um, to see them um, have such influence is 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 amazing um yeah, yeah. It, it, it struck me when i read uh, also that one of the things they said they want is they want to be listened to yeah i mean i find that very powerful in itself I mean, it's not an unreasonable ask is it yeah, they, they have very simple asks, actually, which is like, you know, stand with us and listen to us and support us. And that is absolutely what should happen. Um, and it's it's heartbreaking for the women to, to not be heard sometimes. Like people might come 
to meet with them but don't necessarily hear what they have to say mm -hmm. um so they do ask that they're listened to because they are the experts and they are the influencers in their community and they do know the solutions so if those are listened to and then supported and that doesn't mean that we need interventions mm -hmm. uh as in we don't need the federal government rolling in here with the military um we have the solutions people the solutions are known um, they just need to be supported. So what, what are some of those solutions? What are they saying? Well, I mean, we have a lot of work to do around primary prevention. I won't lie around that, but we have very, um, we know that we need to respond to risk better. We need to identify and manage risk better. And we know that we need to work together. We, need, we know that we need a coordinated approach, an integrated approach to responding to violence against women that goes across all sectors. We know that. Um, and we've had various things in place at various times and then things have fallen away. So is that something that the women advocate for quite strongly is having that coordinated approach and also that um, a number of their projects that, that have really broad range and transparency simply be supported with adequate resourcing and funding. It's not it's not a huge ask actually. And we're not we're also not uh, talking about huge amounts of money for a lot of these solutions. They don't require uh, huge amounts of money, but they do require political will and buy-in. What's um, what's possible in terms of ending uh, violence against women based on what you're, you're seeing in countries around the world that might have made progress? Is there a particular target or is there a particular goal that, I mean, we often talk in homelessness about ending homelessness and countries like Finland have made really good inroads there. Mm -hmm. What What is it like in the domestic family violence, sexual violence space? Yeah, so I mean, the next national plan to end violence against women and children is coming out in October, and that's a 10 year plan. And that 10 year plan talks about ending violence in one generation. Um, but ending violence against women is long term. Um, so because we measure violence against women in two different ways, there's lots of methods, but primarily what we look at is lifetime experience. So how many women in their lifetime have experienced violence by an intimate male partner, for example. Um, and then the other measure we look at <clears throat> is in the last 12 months. So how many women have experienced violence in the last 12 months? So <clears throat> we, sorry, we should begin to see progress on the 12 month indicator. Um, so hopefully as we go, and as we put these interventions in place, primary prevention, early intervention, response and recovery, we should begin hopefully to see that 12 months, the amount of women who have experienced violence in the last 12 months begin to decrease. But the lifetime experience, that's gonna take a very, very, very long time to decrease. Because obviously, even if we ended violence against women tomorrow, um, many women have already experienced violence. So to end it completely, um, and the impacts of that violence on their lives, that is going to take quite some time. So what we try to do is we look at the things that precede that change. Um, so one of the things that we know is that when people have gender equitable views, people with gender equ equitable views are far less likely to ever use violence. And we know that countries that have higher rates of gender equality have far lower rates of violence. Therefore, by promoting gender equality, creating gender equality and promoting gender equitable views and challenging those other harmful attitudes and beliefs, if we can begin to bring around those changes, then in the long term, that should result in a fall, a reduction in violence against women. I see. With uh, in the Northern Territory, uh with, with women who present to our services, our member services, uh, 53 of them cite uh, domestic family violence as the primary reason for seeking help. Uh, that's compared to 39% nationally. So it's a leading driver. It's the leading driver. Um, what are you hearing about the role that housing plays in this space and the importance of, of housing? And what, what do you think needs to happen in that housing space, whether it be you know, transitional housing or permanent housing or emergency accommodation, et cetera? Where do we start? What's needed? Yeah. Um, so you're absolutely right. Um, uh, domestic family sexual violence is a key driver of homelessness, particularly amongst older women. And we know that older women aged 55 years and above are the fastest growing demographic of homeless people as well. So we have a... Yeah, we have a huge um, problem there. And housing is intimately linked at all stages um, to violence against women. 
um, so at the primary prevention stage, like preventing violence from ever occurring, we need to do a lot of policy reform to make sure that social housing is accessible um, to women and to children, and it's affordable and it's quality housing, um, making these places like places that people actually want to live, um, not punishing people in social housing by giving them inadequate housing or rundown housing or not maintaining or whatever. So we really need to progress policy reform in that area. At that early intervention stage, we need to build more housing. We need more housing. Um, and particularly for people who are at risk as well, um, who are, you know, not to use the language of vulnerability, but are at increased risk of experiencing violence. So we need more social affordable housing for women and children at risk of violence and including um, housing for adolescents as well. And that includes respite accommodation, respite um, where they can go when they're at risk. Um, at the response end, we need a lot. Um, so we need crisis accommodation, more of it, for sure. We have one women's shelter here in Central Australia with around 30 beds. Uh, it's not enough. We need, uh, we need to have places where women can go, where women and children can go when they're experiencing violence. Um, and uh, people do talk about that as maybe we should refocus that on removing people who are using violence from the home so women and children can stay. That certainly is an option and we can look at that, you know, staying safe at home programs. I still think we will need crisis accommodation for those women. It's just not women and children. It's just not possible for them to stay at home. So we need that crisis accommodation. And then the major, major, major gap as I see it is transitional housing. So at the moment, we have so many women going into crisis accommodation and then they come out three, four days later and their options are what? Mm -hmm. To return to a violent home or to be homeless. Um, that, that's not a choice. That's no. not a choice at all. So we, we need something to bridge the gap there. We need um, um, more longer term housing for women. So transitional housing to bridge that gap between crisis accommodation and long-term social affordable housing for those women and children. So transitional housing, yeah, I think is key. And if I had to pick where we started, even though really we should be doing all of these things concurrently, that is where I would start with the transitional housing. But then also like for recovery, when we talk about assisting women and children to recover from the experience of violence so that they can go on to, you know, have like not just safe lives, but joyful and fulfilling lives. Like safety is such a baseline. Yeah. Um, we want people to be able to, you know, have the lives that they want to have, um, to be free and creative and happy and joyful. So I think that's what we should be looking for. So in terms of their recovery and helping them to um, try to manage the, the often lifelong impacts of violence, we need to increase and improve access to long-term affordable housing. Um, and we need to have all of this speaking to each other so that um, we have things available for, in the first place that can act as a preventative or early intervention me measure, but then particularly from crisis accommodation to transitional housing on to long-term affordable social housing. One of the things I liked about that response, Shay, was that you were clear that although there's a lot of need right across the spectrum, right across that housing continuum, um, there's there's a clear place that you think we should start. And I, I think we often find it difficult to prioritise. Where do we, okay. where is the best use of public um, funds to to get to get uh, to get good uh, value? And I guess there's so many options. Uh, and I sometimes wonder if. Um, when it comes up towards elections, for example, when it comes up towards other uh, contestable funding programs, whether you've got what some parts of the human service sector saying, well, we need money for it, for this, and others saying, we need this money, are we competing against each other, or is ultimately it all um, going towards the same um, purpose? And I can't help but think that when it comes to housing for women um, and children, that we have to, we, we, we need to listen, right? Mm. Our sector needs to listen to to um, and I think we do, but I think we need to continue to to do better at, at what what um, what is the role that housing will play in um, in helping women um, uh, experiencing domestic, family, sexual violence to have a place uh, that where they don't have to return to a, a perpetrator or cycle through mm. crisis accommodation all the time, given just the high rates of of our clients that have experienced this. So um, I think. There's a lot of areas where money 
spent would be money well spent but that's what our member organizations are also screaming out for certainly down in central mm -hmm. australia that we just need some transitional accommodation yeah um, yeah I mean, I mean we have very little accommodation across the yeah. board yeah. um but that is the the particular need as i see it um just because we need something that's that's longer than three to four days that crisis accommodation can provide um and so that they can get in place they can get physically safe and then we can start to put other things mm -hmm. around them wraparound services and then either they can transition into that long-term social housing or um into the private market if they're able to um so yeah that's a hundred percent i think that is the key need and what what's what do we see when it comes to overcrowded housing because i, I thought at one level maybe when there's when there's a lot of people in the house that might act as a bit of a circuit breaker or deterrent for violence against no. women but it doesn't seem to does it it's quite the opposite it's a risk it's a risk factor for violence um and if that's because any kind of um stress on the household increases the likelihood that violence will occur and overcrowding adds a lot of stress not just because you have so many people in the house and at one point the average room occupancy for a room uh in a, on a town camp camp was 11 people per room mm -hmm. um that was like from 2005 mobility study conducted by Tangangira. Like that's just astronomical um and we have like we we rely on census data at the moment but we know that there's a 17.5 percent uh, undercount of aboriginal and torres strait islander people in the census um so even with our current census data we're seeing like overcrowding at four five six times the rate um that it exists nationally i think Catherine is somewhere like 30 times the rate or something like that of, of homelessness um and that's just that's just going to be the tip of the iceberg because that data is not not accurate as an undercount there um so the need is yeah is astronomical but when you've got um, that amount of people in a house you've got not only the conflict and the friction that occurs in those kinds of relationships when there's there's not enough space but also think about the impacts on food so then you've got food insecurity and then you've got lack of like um there's competition over like resources like transport things like that um, all of that adds stress to the home. Um, then you've got the financial aspect as well, like um, that there may be financial abuse or a bit of humbug or, or something like that, or just the fact that there's just not enough money for everybody. And that kind of stress, um, all of those stress adding on top of each other, compounding one another, um, it creates conditions that, yeah, lead, lead can result or increase the likelihood of violence occurring. And that would be more that will be visible to more kids and more people, I guess, yeah. if it's in that in that setting as well, causing more trauma, I guess. Exactly. Well. And then and trauma is a risk factor for violence. So we yeah. know that witnessing and even hearing violence as a child um, impacts their long-term well-being. Um, so that that prior experience of trauma, that traumatic history is then a risk factor for future victimization or future perpetration. And that's another area that we're forgetting about the impact on, on children, um, because we know that there are higher rates of post-traumatic stress among children than there are among soldiers returning from war. Wow. And so when we have children in environments where they're witnessing, they're seeing violence, like the impact, yes, on their long-term well-being is, is astronomical. So that's another area that we need to be considering. And yes, in overcrowded housing, they are going to be more likely to see or hear it. Shay, you've talked about before, it was following um, recent tragedy down in Central Australia, but it was quoted saying that um, tired of, of seeing um, Aboriginal women have to drive or lead this messaging around change and um, saying no to violence. And there's a case, there's a need for government to step up and government ministers not just territory, but Commonwealth as well, that have agency responsibilities that touch on all these areas of women's safety. Um, and I'd also like, I guess, just to uh, ask you as a, I guess, as a professional in this field for, for guys like me that, that hear and are really uh, quite disturbed by this and or um, outraged by some of the, the issues that you've raised, um, how can men be ambassadors or how can, how, what part, role can men play in this, uh, in this space? That's a really good question. And I think the first thing I would say is that uh, to turn up 
because I, I think sometimes men don't step into the domestic family sexual violence space because maybe they feel like they won't be welcome when they're there. Uh, I want to emphasize that quite the opposite is true. Um, men are very, very, very much welcome and sought after in those spaces. Um, we do really value and want the voices of men in those spaces. Um, men also experience violence. Um, that violence is is often most commonly um, from another man. Um, but even in a family violence situation, men experience violence from other men. So my point is, is that the drivers of violence against women um, have something in common with men's experience of violence too. So we all stand to benefit from gender equality and we all stand to benefit from addressing domestic family sexual violence. And that, of course, men have a, have a key role, the key role, I would say, to play in that men and boys so that would be my first thing is to come along to come along um, to sector events and involve your yourself and engage um, you are welcome and you are wanted and we do want to hear your voices in that space so that's the first thing the second thing that I would say is that there's something particularly powerful about men telling other men or talking to other men about healthy relationships um, and I, and, and that might be a little bit difficult to do in the first instance, but, um, violence against women begins with disrespect. And I think you can challenge the men in your lives, in your friendship groups, uh, in, uh, in your sporting organizations, in your workplace, um, to have respect for women and never to condone domestic family sexual violence. And that doesn't need to be done in a confrontation, confrontational way. Um, our watch has some good resources around uh, assisting men to have those conversations with other men um, and just, you know, holding holding a line, I would say, holding a line that, no, we, we do not condone and we do not justify or excuse violence against women in any way and, and we maintain respect uh, for the dignity of women and children. Um, and, again, that can be done, you know, even in, like in a good way. It doesn't have to be done in a confrontational way. And then the third thing that I would do is I would I would ask men to consider their role in gender inequality and how that plays out in their own homes and their own relationships because gender inequality is the key driver of violence against women. Gender inequality creates violence against women and violence against women creates gender inequality. So I'd ask men to look at and examine their relationships and examine their own homes. So, for example, do you share the care work equally with your female partner if you have a female partner? Um, do, you share, do you share that work? Or is it, for example, is it always your partner who has to take the day off work when the child is sick? Um, is it always your partner who does the vast majority of the work around the house? And we have the data around this and the data shows that it does, that women do more than double the amount of unpaid work than men. So having a look at those things and go, how can I share the load here? Yeah. And then in the workplace, um, is everyone getting paid equally? And is there transparency around that equally for equal work? Um, and trying to push those initiatives around gender equality and getting involved, get involved in promoting gender equality because it benefits men too. Shay, thank you for sharing that. That's really important uh, advice there and something we can all certainly take on board and act on. Um, one last question uh, for you. This uh, space, no doubt, is very rewarding at times and there are lots of amazing women that you'd have the privilege, I'm sure, to work with and communities to work with. But I've no doubt at times will be very harrowing and, and confronting. How do you look after yourself? And I guess for for people who might be watching or in this space who are, who are working big hours under stress, certainly at that crisis response end, what would you say to them in terms of how they can make sure they're okay? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Thank you for asking that. And that this is one of my favorite things to do is to talk to the sector and people who work around it, um, how they can take care of themselves. Because with, without the workforce, without the staff, we will get nowhere. Like we can't sustain. We will never end violence against women. We will never address our housing needs if we don't have our workers. Our workers are our most precious resource. So we have to take care of them as well. So it's not just about self-care. I think it's about collective care as well. Um, Organisations need to take a responsibility and a lead in promoting collective care and have, I think they should have collective care plans in place as well. Um, in terms of taking care of yourself, now I'm not going to pretend I'm not, I'm the best at this, 
there are times, you know, where it is extremely difficult. Um, uh, vicarious trauma is a real thing, a very real thing. So I guess that would be the first part of my advice is I, I would suggest learning about vicarious trauma and the way that it manifests and pay attention to that and um, the way it can begin to affect your sense of safety. It can begin to affect your relationships. So noticing the signs of that and then having a plan in place to act accordingly. I think it's really important to have structured debriefs. I think it's really important to have structured and, and culturally appropriate supervision as well so that you can mitigate some of those impacts of vicarious trauma, noting that so many people who work in this field have their own experiences of trauma. So you have primary trauma compounded by vicarious trauma. And then the other thing would be around this idea, yes, of self-care. of self -care. I think it's really important that because we work in such a hard and difficult place at times, like often amazing and creative as well, um, I think that acknowledging the strengths um, but always doing something joyful for yourself every day, um, whether that's like playing a sport or going to the gym or cooking a new recipe or going for a walk outside, you need to do something for yourself. And I think that that actually should be built into your day. And I think it should be planned for as a, as a means to nourish you and enrich you and, and, and keep you going. Uh, and then the third thing I think is that I'm always amazed by people who work in this sector, like how perpetually hopeful they are and that they continue to give and give and give and they maintain this hope all the time. Those who don't maintain hope burn out. So I would, I would really encourage you to always find the hope and to always look for the hope and maintain that hopeful outlook because I think that will get you through um so those three things learn about vicarious trauma and act to mitigate it have a self-care plan in place and as an organization have a collective care plan in place and then the third thing would be about maintaining hope dr shay brown that's uh wonderful um advice very practical and um and positive and with a degree of uh, uplifting uh, hope there as well. Thank you very much for joining us on Sharing the Couch today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and keep going with that amazing work that you and, and, and your team are doing across Australia and the rest of the world. It's, it's, it's really important that we um, uh, end violence against women um, and have a fairer, uh, more just and equitable uh, opportunity in society uh, for for women uh, right across the world and certainly here in Northern Territory. We've got a lot of need as we've discussed today, but um, you know, when we've got really capable people like you in the field, we can certainly make a difference and especially if we work together. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. You've been listening to episode 10 of Sharing the Couch by NT Shelter. If this conversation has raised issues for you or if you are currently experiencing domestic violence, call 1800RESPECT. That's 1800-737-732. Opinions expressed by guests on Sharing the Couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of NT Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe.